Hello and welcome to STP Talks, a series of conversations with academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. My very special guest today is Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator. Fraser and I discuss Scotland's place in the Union by addressing a series of key questions. Has devolution strengthened or weakened the Union? Is identity the key question, more important than economics? Has Brexit increased or decreased the prospect of Scots secession? If you're interested in these matters, I hope you'll listen. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Fraser. Great to be here. So uh, let's kick off with uh, a broad question, but a difficult one. Uh, in your opinion, has devolution strengthened or weakened the Union? I think it's weakened the Union, the exact opposite of what it was supposed to do. When you ask the difficult question of whether devolution has been a success or not, it's pretty difficult to point to any success. Um, you would, I, I personally, as a Scot, I would look at public services, like has Scottish education got better relative to English? Has Scottish health service got better relative to the English NHS? To be born Scottish has always been the most incredible stroke of good luck through most of human history, especially with the education. Mm. It, the education system used to be, you know, indisputably mm. better than that of England. It's hard to make that argument now, and the gap has, has grown bigger. So, I mean, set aside, I could talk for a long time about the tragic failures of, uh, of devolution and addressing what I always thought were the biggest, uh, the biggest problem of all, of course, is poverty in Glasgow, where, mm. where my dad is from. Mm. We had some of the worst poverty in the whole Western world mm. in Glasgow. And it always struck me that this was perhaps part of the London didn't care very much. If we had our own parliament, then surely those guys would be really interested in what was causing the misery in, in, in Glasgow. And we would address what had become the most expensive poverty in the world, but no, that's been completely ignored and they moved on to the constitutional question. Um, and the SNP, let's remember, devolution was designed hmm. as a snare to hmm. entrap the yes. SNP. Yeah. It was designed to, to sap the demand of it and to make sure that the secession question would go away forever. Well, let's see if that test has been passed. No, the secession question is very much in the agenda. Still, broadly speaking, 45% of Scots want Scotland to leave the UK. And devolution has been used as a tool to leverage that, to change the political language of Scotland. So we now, instead of having Grampian police and Glasgow police, we have police Scotland. The kind of the language that nationalists, the tactics that nationalists use have been deployed very effectively, remorselessly, uh, grievances with England or with Westminster, as the, the usual code they use for England, have been ramped up at every opportunity. And as a result, our union has never been in greater peril hmm. and devolution has ended up doing the precise opposite of weakening the bonds that ought to hold us together as a country. So as somebody who voted for devolution, I feel, I feel foolish uh, because I ignored those who told me that it would be hijacked and used immediately as a tool for secession, but it would not address the problems I thought. I was also, and remain, a believer in the kind of Scottish genius. I just thought that, the, if, that we would use these great political minds to come up with Scottish solutions for Scottish problems. Mm. That made a lot of sense to me, because our education system is different. Mm. Um, lots of our, our system is different, mm. the culture, the religion. And I just thought that those, there would be a better match mm. between policies coming out of Holyrood and the problems faced in Scotland. Mm. But instead, as far as I can work out, 
almost every single one of those problems has got worse relative to what's happening in England. And the deep politicians ended up hoarding the power they were supposed to give to the people. So even devolutions failed to devolve power. You ended up with the Blair reforms that empowered patients and empowered parents. But in Scotland, you end up with a party which seems to think it's a good idea to create a brand new East Germany, holding all that power. So I'm afraid to say I can't think of many reasons why, if going back, why I would vote for devolution again. Mm. Well, there's a lot of lot in that uh, answer, Fraser. So I, I was you started off by talking about th you know uh, particular policy areas, education, and health, mm. and so on. And I agree with you on that. My where I was getting at with the question was really a question of uh, disintegration and unintended consequences. Because I think that the in terms of UK policy in relation to Scotland, I think the big error, the really big error, is to to fail to confront a basic question: is are the measures which you're taking to Scotland, are, are, the, are the policy solutions that you're offering uh, constitutionally, are they likely to increase integration within the UK or, or put, a, put energy behind this process of disintegration? Now, I would argue, probably along the same lines as you, that there's been a Scottification of, of culture. I've seen it in my, I'm 56, you know, I'm, I'm mainly Scots by, by blood, and I've seen it over, over my life. Scotland's become more uh, Scottish, the sense of identity has been reinforced, and UK policy at every stage virtually is to say, well, give it a little bit more and that'll yeah. satisfy it. But actually what you don't get is, what well, you don't satisfy it, you just actually feed it. Would yeah. that be a fair? Yes, that's fair. And I think this is one of the tragic things we've seen over the years is that Westminster politicians do tend to know the south of France better than the north of England and certainly better than Scotland. And so they see a problem which they don't really focus on now and they get, oh, the Scots are agitating, they want independence, but let's just give them a little bit more power. You see it even now, oh, let's give the Scottish Parliament more powers and maybe that will make it go away, but the fundamental argument to, to devolution, but no, it doesn't. Uh, but I would say that there's been a trend, not just in Scotland, but throughout Europe, perhaps the world, of slightly greater sense of national identity. Yes. I think there's been a move away from the homogenizing, globalizing trend of the post-communist world and towards a greater sense of pride. You can see it not just in politics, but in everything. You can see there are national parties all over Europe. Even if you look at Eurovision Song Contest, you can see three of the top four entries this year were in their national languages. That never used to be the case. So you can see uh, all over Europe people having a greater sense of their country. But what surprises me is the number of Scots who think that country is Scotland first and Britain second, if at all. Yeah, that's the point. And I, I obviously, the, a, a broad look at the turn of the world um, against globalism, and, and there is, a, there is an up, upswelling of, of national uh, identity and thought about that. I can see that everywhere. And a lot of that, actually, we would, we would largely support. But you're quite right in saying that the the, the, the nation in question here is Scotland. I think, I mean, when you look at the stats, uh, the support for secession is very high among, among the young in, in Scotland. And I would, I would say where it links to broader culture, not just what you're talking about with globalism, but broader culture about how we see ourselves in the UK. I think when you have a, uh, a cultural elite, when you have an academic elite and, and much of the media going through a process, a long range process, 20, 30 years of uh, disparaging anything British, don't be surprised then that young Scots say, actually, no, I'm Scots. Yeah. Do you think there's an angle there? Yeah, I, I do very, very much so. It is 
I mean, look, even I am no, to put it mildly, no nationalist, but I am incredibly proud to be Scottish. I would, uh, and I, I always have been. When I look at my, my, my country, I just see, first of all, when it says my country, I, I do talk about Scotland there. I'd say, of course, you know, you, one can have concentric identities. Mm. But, and I would say that I'm a Highlander, uh, I'm a Scot, and I'm a Brit, and I'm a European. I would, I would claim all of these mm. identities. Mm. But certainly, I can't think of a time where there was ever really a Scottish cringe. To the word Scotland has always been a word that, that warms the heart, yes. in a way that the word English yes. doesn't seem to be for people in England. And I'm not quite sure why that is. There's a strange idea that if it's the fashionable thing to do now is to try to find faults in Britain, faults in its history, faults in its monarchy. I mean, you know, just I read in the papers this morning that one of these funny Oxbridge colleges has taken down a picture of the Queen because she's... Yes. I've put in a bid for it, yes. <laughs> if they don't want the picture, I'll have it. Yeah, so, but, yeah. but it's funny, I mean, I'm not sure that, you know, you've got that same sort of uh, discomfort with the idea of nationhood in Scotland as you do in England. And certainly there is, again, not many people call themselves British. That's no, the I, other thing. This is it. Yeah, I think we're really get, getting to the heart of it because it's frankly, I mean, to go back to the denigration of Britain, I think England wears the, uh, the baggage, you know, wears that. It's been put on England, effectively. Uh, now, obviously, anyone that knows any history will know that uh, Scots were, you know, very enthusiastic, very successful imperialists and colonists. But it's easier, somehow it's easier just to give, uh, to give those, uh, give that history away and start afresh and you don't have the baggage. And I, as I say, I can understand it. I've, you know, I've got nephews and nieces in Scotland and I, I can understand why they would identify. It's just simply easier to identify as being Scots in a sense. So let's just... I, obviously, we all learnt a lot during the 2016 referendum and the precursor to that and what happened afterwards. So one of the lessons we learnt was that um, identity was far more important than economics. Would you agree with that? And what, what sort of, how, what purchase does that have, that, that fact? I mean, first, do you agree with that in Scotland's case? And if it does, what purchase, what, what, what can it tell us about where Scotland is? I think politics comes in, in trends and ebbs and flows, and there have been times where economics would be deciding political questions. We all know that the Bill Clinton slogan, it's the economy is stupid. Uh, we also know that there is a generation of politicians, the Camerons and the Osbournes, mm. who were basically brought up on Blair worship and thinking mm. that economics trumps everything. Mm. So when they came to fight the uh, Brexit campaign, they would come up with these fake figures saying that if you voted for Brexit, you'd be £4,300 worse off. Mm. And they saw it in the same way, I'm afraid to say, that unionists quite often did the same thing. Mm. Oh, if you vote for independence, you're going to be X amount worse off. And surely that's a slam dunk. And you, almost as if that one tends to vote because you look at a spreadsheet and put in a formula. And does a spreadsheet say plus or does a spreadsheet say minus? Mm. Um, and I have to say that for a long time, that was how one answered the union question mm. in Scotland. You would, you would say, okay, let's do the figures. Would Scotland be better off even with the North Sea oil? Actually, no, we'd be worse off, so let's not vote for independence. That was how the unionists very lazily mm. battered away mm. the independence question without dealing with, with anything else. Um, and I remember there was an opinion poll at the time saying that yes, people supported Scottish independence, but if they were told they'd be 500 pounds worse off, then they would change their vote. And these sort of statistics were lapped up in Westminster, thinking, look at these jocks, you know, 
they basically give them an iPad and they'll change their views. So let's just bung them some more money and maybe they'll vote to stay. But no, I agree with that. I think, they, I think it's been, I think to think that that was, should have been the single lesson that you got from 2016 was that economics isn't a clincher in the way that they thought it would be. So you, you, that can't be the approach to Scotland. But actually, let's, let's just continue this, this probe. The, the, your, toss them a little bit more money gives them a little bit more money. I think actually that's, I would say, that's as, a, as someone that lives just south of the border, and you know, I live a few miles south of Hadrian's Wall, literally. Um, I think that's the uh, Achilles heel that unionists aren't thinking about because I think the, um, the general approach to Scotland, as you say, they know that they're now on Teebe more than, than Kilbride. You know, they're, just, they, they're not well acquainted with the culture at all, many of the policymakers are where, we're, where we're sitting from. They, they, their attitude is just toss them a little bit of money, almost buy it, which is highly patronising. And what's happened is you've, you've got this uh, grossly distorted settlement with, Barnet, with the Barnet formula, which increases antagonism in England. And I think in a, a recent piece, which um, Lionel Shriver, a brilliant piece in, in The Spectator a couple of weeks ago, where she was saying, well, I wish if they want it, give it to them, you know, good and hard. But she pointed out in that piece that... Um, that you know, only something like 30% of English people really care about this. Mm. And I think partly the reason for that is that we're fed on a total diet of, 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 of citizens, a sense in which citizens are not being treated on a par. So do you think that the, the lazy, just give them more money thing is actually one of the most dangerous things they've done? It's, I think the, that's always been an English attitude, I think, that if Scotland wants to go, then let Scotland go. Now that is very different to, for example, the Spanish attitude, which is like, if the Catalans want to go, then send in the tanks. Yeah? Uh, so, but the funny thing is, I think, about the English character is it's exact opposite to colonialist character. The English must be the most relaxed people in the world about, um, about laying a claim over the, the, their own and, and the very idea that we're even permitting a referendum would absolutely amaze many other countries. I think it's a offence under the American Constitution to have a secession referendum if Texas wanted to go free. They would never be allowed to do it. The Spanish mm. would never tolerate it. Mm. We're quite unusual mm. in thinking that if any part of this country wanted to leave, even on their own island, that we, we would actually let them. So I think the, the, the English, I don't think it's necessarily resentment of, of Scots insofar as I guess your average English person thinks about it, they would think, well, Scots are quite heavily subsidised and, you know, if they want to go on a loan, good luck to them. Though also in a piece, Lionel Shriver pointed out that half of Scots don't want this. And, I mean, I, I went through a version of this argument where I thought I used to be in favour of Scottish fiscal autonomy. Mm. In other words, thinking, OK, let's give them economic independence, them meaning us, of course, thinking that that's... Um, Let's uh, let Scotland's budget be set by whatever it raises in tax. But that's more disintegration. That's my point about the integration disintegration thing. I think the, the thing that's missed in the centre of UK policymaking is is any action that you do, any 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 constitutional arrangement or, or change you make. Ask yourself the basic question: Does it integrate, or does it disintegrate? Does it lead to? Don't be surprised. I mean, I would say a lot of English policymakers, British policymakers, have been slow learners on this because. Don't be surprised if you call if, if British Rail in Scotland can't be called British Rail anymore, it has to be called Scott Rail. And and even political parties can't trade as the Conservative Party, it has to be the Scottish Conservative Party or the Scottish Liberal. I mean, don't be surprised that we don't do that. We're just the SDP. But you know, we we if you do that, don't be surprised that the end of the process is secession. Yeah. And that's a big, of course, this is 
the, the asymmetry of the debate in Scotland, because to the nationalists regard this as very important, which flags are flown where, what language we put on it. Um, after uh, privatisation, uh, British gas became Scottish gas up there, uh, for example. But they've been very astute in, in rebranding re public services, of course, NHS Scotland has always been, since 1948, it's been organisationally independent, where unionists have not tended to care much about that, but it does, it does matter, partly because unionists have been, to your earlier point, just obsessed with the economics, thinking, look, yes. for, as long as, for as long as Scotland is in England's deficit, we don't need to worry about all of this. We don't need to think about questions it's like too reliant identity. to escape. Yes, yeah. that's what they think. Uh, but only, only recently did you find, I think, the, you're right in saying that 2016 what ought to be a reminder that these economic arguments don't work, but don't, don't trump identity. Mm. But to be honest, the 2014 referendum ought to have shown that as well. Mm. It, was, it, it was a referendum campaign that significantly increased the support for independence. Yes, well, almost by design. I mean, the, the, their attitudes, they couldn't, I mean, as you say, they were making secondary arguments, economics, as primary arguments. And then when they got into a panic, they immediately uh, went for the checkbook. Project, yeah. yeah well, um, but also you can have even more. You can have more. You know, that was that was Cameron's attitude. So it, it was just mistaken. I think they. It's better to ask uh, whether we're getting together or not. What where the where the direction of that stuff is, and you'll, you won't. I don't think you can trump the identity questions. And as a sort of nation-state democrat, I wouldn't actually argue that you should necessarily. Um, I, I, you know, as a, as a a lowercase unionist, I, I would, I would, argue, I think we are better together, far better together. It's been a very successful union. But I, I, this is why I take the, the sort of long-term view of what's happened culturally. I would say, you know, unless it's re unless it's reversed in some way, unless you can sort of get a sense of re reintegration. Uh, obviously, in the end, it probably will happen. Do you, let's deal with one of the big elephants in the room. And I, I you know, uh, I think we're agreed, aren't we, that it would be a mistake for unionists to focus on um, on the on the on the money. I think you've got, to, you've got to look at the identity and the wider questions. Yeah, but can I just say that you're right that it's a mistake. However, they don't know where to begin talking about identity. Yes. People have realised for seven years yes. that that's been a mistake. No, good, but for great seven point. years, they haven't worked out how on yes. earth we talk about Britain in the same way the nationalists talk about Scotland. Exactly. No, that's, that's my point, basically. Until they can find a vocabulary for that or find something that brings us together, then, then, it, then it, that's one of the reasons that it has to come down to second. It, perhaps politicians find it easier to trade and, and, and we'll give you this and you'll, be, you'll get this and that. But, but actually that's just irrelevant. You won't in the end. That won't convince anyone. It won't clinch anything. Well, to build up the positive case for a country takes a long time. To make the negative case against secession can be done quite quickly. You use, it's a kind of like a chemotherapy of project fear. Yeah. You, it might just get you over the line, but what it does is inject poison into the political bloodstream. And the poison that that injected there, the poison that was basically saying to the Scots, you're too small, you're too poor, you couldn't do it, just forget it. Now that even makes me indignant. Of no, it does. And, and no, I've, one of the things in all interviews and all, I, I've written a little bit on this and, and talking to friends, and, and as I say, it's not, it's not just because we're a sort of Anglo-Scots family, but I've never, I would never ever doubt their ability to make a success of it. In the end, I think there'd be, there'd be chop, serious chop. We've had a little bit of chop with Brexit, but you, there would be some, but I don't, I really reject any. And also it's not a question, Fraser, of scale. It's not a question of, you know, I mean, there are some very highly successful, probably the most successful state in the world. Uh, Singapore is quite a small city state. Uh, it's an, I'm not convinced by any of those things. I think if the Scots wanted 
to vote for it and they, and they united the country behind it, I, I, I think they could make a success of it. In the end, they would. But I think there'll be a very, very serious chop. I mean, obviously, you can just see the, the fiscal, I think it's what, up to 20% now because of the last year, so it's very serious. But it, it, it's, do you agree with me that it would be a mistake for unions to say you can't do it? Yes, it's insulting and it's provocative. And I think there's no greater way to increase support for independence than have somebody come up from London saying, don't think about it, Jocko, you're too small. You're too small, it's rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, now, the thing is, one of the ideas favoured in London, apparently Michael Gove's in favour of this, is approaching it by basically coming up with the terms of separation before a referendum. So we say, OK, uh, let's not do what we did with Brexit, let's get the negotiation in first, and let's ask questions because the SNP sells a sort of a dream and an ideal. It doesn't ask questions like, what's the currency mm. going to be? Will we be using the pound? They say, no, we'd use something else. Yeah. In which case, what currency is the pension going to be paid in? Who's going to be paying these pensions? So once you start to talk about, in the last, um, in the last Holyrood election, just a, um, a few weeks ago, Nicola Sturgeon admitted that she had not updated the economic case for independence since the referendum. Well, they prefer not to look at it because yeah. it's so bad. I mean, obviously, in the short term, it's so bad that they, they don't really have answers to that. And I think you're quite right to say, I mean, it's one of the things we should have learned from, from Brexit, because someone, I argued for Brexit on a, a, a Lexit sort of left of centre. I mean, it was, it was, you know, honestly, it was, it was a few years ago, arguing for greater uh, trade friction was, was like, you know, it was, it was un you know, people thought you were crazy. Now, not so much. The pandemic's changed that a little bit. But we, the type of Brexit that we wanted was, was it was very different from Dougie Carlswell and, and Dan Hannan. I mean, you know, we just argued. But but that was that was a, a first order, second order thing. But I think you're right. I mean, I think tactically, your uh, your predecessor, who is now prime minister, <laughs> ought to think about if he if he does think about um, uh, granting a referendum, is is to hammer out some of these issues. One of the things you haven't mentioned is is uh, we're talking a republic or a monarchy. Right now, the, the royal family remains very popular in Scotland, as it does in England. So the idea that Alex Salmond said that she'll still be Queen of Scots, um, and that was so the idea is it would still be. And by the way, that's perfectly plausible when you look at all the other former members of the British Empire. The Queen is still Union the Queen of Crowns of a, predated. Yes, a, a, she, she's Queen of a great many countries other than uh, other than the UK. So so that so that's plausible and. Uh, which is why it's interesting to see talk now that of um, William and Kate being used as a sort of monarchist, a sort of a, a unionist marketing agent. Mm. So the, 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 there's talk now that, okay, none of our political figures have got any real clout, because that's the problem for the unionists. Who is the, the yes. figurehead here? Sure, you've got Nicola Sturgeon, who is regarded as a living saint by many of the SME followers. So who do we send opposite against her? We found that, by the way, in the 20, 14 election campaign, um, the referendum campaign. Like, sure, you had, I think Alex Ferguson gave a, a couple of quotes supportive of independence, but there was no real kind of leader for the unionists clause. So you get a, a few people like, yeah, like Neil Oliver, the television historian, and a few other people like that. But there's, you know, as the Poem puts it, no gods and precious few heroes. Yeah, and, and Neil's very good, Neil was very good um, on this. And he, one of the things he's best at is demonstrating almost as a person that, that, uh, that uh, you can be unionist and that you're no less Scots. I mean, one of the worst things, one of the things that I've really found irritating 
tactically that the S&P has done is, is to question people's uh, Scottishness, yeah. uh, which is uh, absurd. I mean, it's completely... I mean, I, I don't really know how they've got away with that. I know, and I get it all the time, actually. Uh, I mean, I, I remember during the campaign, Tricia Marwick, who used to be a presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament, mm. came after me, informing me that, in her words, um, Scottish birth does not a Scotsman make. It, sometimes it signals, in her words, a Scotsman on the make. Now, I'm not quite sure what she meant there. Obviously, I wasn't sufficiently Scottish for her, which, again, is it you, Mike Russell, the president of the SNP, is referred to me as a sort of exiled mm. Scot. In other words, again, questioning my, my, my purity because I happen to work in another part of the family of the United Kingdom. Yeah. The, by the way, we shouldn't be too surprised about this because the blood and soil nationalism is never that far It's behind. not far. No, you know, it's the SNP leadership has done a quite a good job at trying to cultivate a civic nationalism. Mm. But nationalism is a very difficult tiger to ride. Mm. And before too long, you get into situations of, of do you sound properly Scottish? Which, by the way, I do not sound mm. properly Scottish to a great no. many Scots, which is a, a point that if I've ever gone Scottish media, You're convincing you know. me, Fraser, you're in good company. Well, I, I have the other thing, which I, yeah, I say mainly Scottish by blood, but I, I don't, I've never pretended to be Scots in, in that sense. I was born in, in the northeast of England and uh, and I, I to sort of use Jonathan Miller's uh, phrase, I'm Scottish. You know, <laughs> that's how that's what it is. And I've, I'm very you know, fond, very strong Orkney links and things, but it's, it's, it's the way it is actually. But there is a diaspora. I mean, that was another question. What, what do, do we have a say? I don't know. Um, can I finish uh, off just on a, on a couple of what might seem sort of practical questions, sort of more practical questions. This is something that exercised the, uh, um, the media quite a lot after 2016, because everyone, it seemed to almost be a consensus that, um, that, uh, that voting for Brexit increases the probability of, of Scots' secession. It was taken almost, yeah. not that many commentators argued against that. And sort of internationally, New York Times, WAPO, and all these people saying, oh, you're just about to break, and it's terrible, and you're going to break up the union. But actually, uh, my favourite uh, political philosopher, John Gray, wrote immediately afterwards, and oh, no, it doesn't actually. Actually, Brexit probably decreases the probability of Scotland seceding. So what's your view on that? Because that's a very practical thing. I think John Gray is, is correct. And you're right, it is about a practical thing. Uh, I remember that you're right, when Britain voted for Brexit, I think Andrew Marr tweeted, well, that's the union down the Cassie. A lot of people thought that because you had this narrative of, well, Scots voted to remain and England voted to leave, so surely that's going to increase. No, when you look at it, first of all, two in five Scots voted for Brexit, 50% of English voted for Brexit. A difference, but not a night and day difference. Mm. Um, and also, let's remember, not a single figure in Scottish political life backed Brexit. Mm. All of their main figures, Ruth Davidson, all, all the in rest, a row, yeah. they were all remain. So it's amazing, actually that two in five Scots still voted for Brexit without any, well, it, without a single Scottish voice calling for it. Fraser, it took us over the line. <laughs> <laughs> but without those Scots votes, we wouldn't have, wouldn't have had Brexit. So, no, I mean, I, I think, uh, the, no, I, I think the, I think Gray was probably right, but I think what Gray was getting at was that although he regarded the UK as a sort of relic of empire and things, but it had uh, certainly the impediments, the, uh, the impediments in front of uh, the SNP and Scots Nats to try and achieve their goal actually got higher 
Oh yeah, because now independence means leaving the customs union of the UK. It means leaving the single market of the UK. It means building a hard border between Scotland and England. If anything, EU membership made secession a lot easier. It completely removed the practical implications because does it really matter? Look at England and Ireland. But now, when we see the hassle that even England has, Britain has with Northern Ireland, Imagine that multiplied by a factor of I don't know what if you're going to if, the, if Scotland joins the EU. So it doesn't take long to think of the practical implications of it. Set aside the notion of making foreigners out of our friends and relatives in England. Um, the practical implications of tearing ourselves away from the single market of the United Kingdom. It presents so many practical problems that I certainly think that independence is, when you come to think of it, the SNP's great trick is to make sure nobody thinks of it. But when you actually do set your mind to it, you really struggle to think how the advantages can outweigh the Yeah, the hideous, hideous uh, obstacles and, and uh, there would be incredible turbulence, astonishing turbulence on a, on a scale but as I say, in the long run, I don't know that they probably make a success of it, but I think it would be, it has, I think Brexit's increased that. I mean, it was interesting to look at the polling, about 20% of SNP supporters want pro what I would regard as proper independence, you know, Iceland type independence, or possibly Norway. But, and because, and you know, you're not independent if you're, if you're in the EU, but that's a, that's a separate argument. Um, so do you think, uh, what about a referendum? What about the tactics of the government at the moment? It's easy for us, we're a small party growing, we t we've largely, in this, we've largely been led by our, our Scots members. And for us, for the SDP, the referendum, it's a very simple, the, 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 an Indie Ref 2 is off the agenda, because it's a generation, so it has to be in the 30s at the least. Uh, and you've got to respect, as Democrats, you've got to respect results. Yes, circumstances change, but you've got to, so for us it's very simple, our policy is, it's off the, off the table. What, what, does, what, does, what does Boris Johnson do about this? Um, First of all, spent every single day campaigning for the union in the same way the SNP spends every day campaigning for separation. Uh, don't think of the campaign as being something that may or may not happen in two to five years' time. Think of it as something you're engaged in right now. Uh, have the Scotland office as an office for the union. Um, start to think of ways in which the union dividend is more uh, clearly expressed. Stop treating tr trips to Scotland like trips to Iceland, make more regular manifestations of the British government in Scotland. There's a whole bunch of things that they could do if they really put their minds to it. And right now, it's funny, they go through phases and think, okay, we're really serious about this, we're going to get going. And usually when there's a scare, but then they forget about it or something else happening and it's put on, on the back burner. Um, because, the, I mean, let's face it, even after Brexit, Support for Scottish independence is where it was seven years ago. Mm. Briggs has not moved that dial. You can see the case for being uh, complacent mm. about it. Now, I think that Nicola Sturgeon is the great pretender in that she makes out as if Scots are just chomping at the bit to leave because look at all the constituencies that, that she's got, when in fact her case is very thin, her support base is um, fractured, but what she is very good doing is paralysing the Westminster uh, Tories and indeed Labour into near immobility. So they ought to be campaigning as if the referendum isn't too, uh, building the case, the identity case for yes. the union, making the positive case for the union and recognising that that takes years. It does do. take you, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think the disappointing thing about the, the knee jerk 
reaction to new polls that startle people in, and people in SW1 get startled and they say, oh, I'll toss them a few more biscuits. And that, I, as I said, I return to it. That is one of the biggest problems. You know, it's a Napoleonic thing, the hand above is always, you know, that gives is always above the hand that receives. But that's a, quite a patronising attitude to have to what is a, 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 essentially an important thing about us. Are we us? And I think if we're not us, we're, we're finished, actually, and, and, and you've got a new future, but it's, it's not the one we had. Uh, can I, before we finish, one more question, one more question on, on, on what I think is unfinished business, uh, which is the question of an English Parliament and, and constitutionally what we do with the... Now, it's not been addressed. Politicians don't really want to talk about this. But we, we in our party, had a look at it. And I think it is. I think you have, you know, English votes for English laws and West Lothian still hovering around. But do you agree that the... Oh, it's not just Celtic nationalism which has blossomed. It's, it's also English nationalism has as well. And do you think that's, that is unfinished business? I mean, our policy is to, is to address it. If you don't, I, I mean, again, I've, I've canvassed people. You can't, the prospect of removing the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament, I think it politically is zero. I think it's there. It's very, very difficult to say, we're well, just going to take that off, you know. Um, so I think the realistic adaptation adjustment to it is, is an English Parliament. And if, if I had my way, it would be in York. Because I think that's the, that's the end game to the, if you want to, if, what Blair started was, was partial and you can't leave it as it is. Do you think that's a fair argument for an English Parliament? There is a certain technocratic logic to it, certainly, but it's an asymmetric, it's an imbalance. Look at Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, yet where is England's Parliament? And now and again you hear solutions for it. Uh, one of them being, let's kick out the Scots from Westminster now and again, they English only. For example, I think tuition fees was um, foisted upon England against the wishes of English MPs because of Scots. Now, I, if I were an English, um, well, I suppose, uh, look, I, I'm a Scot, but I can't, imagine, I can't work out why there wasn't more English anger about that. But, uh, but there, is, there, there, is, there is anger, as I said before, you see, this is why I think the seeds of secession may be being planted in England. That's my point. I think the, I think the, because people underestimate it in pub arguments and discussions, people talk about you know free prescriptions or free tuition fees. I mean now I've you know my I've got three three children and they all paid they all went to English universities born here and they paid you know so there's twenty best part of thirty grand extra and my my sister's children don't now believe me in in the pub I've heard people say well how aren't people outraged by that well maybe they are I don't know I think but just constitutionally I think. It's, it's, we argue that you've, that's the final, the final adaptation that's got to be made. And usually the, the argument that's made against it is that England's too big for its own parliament in relation to the others. But I always say, when people say that, is, well, if you think that, then England's too big for the Union. The funny thing is, if you look again, look at nationalist movements, you very seldom see the biggest country having a nationalist movement. I mean, you can see people saying, make London independent. Sometimes you, you see that, of course, they've got the London Assembly. And now and again, you think, let's kick out the Scots. Uh, the Swedes say a bit like, give Skorna back to Denmark and stuff. You know, there's a little, uh, it's a joke, but it never really takes off because I think the, the biggest country in the union doesn't really tend to feel um, set upon, hard done by. Usually it's got a pretty, it's got a pretty good deal. As I would argue, Scotland has got a pretty good deal from the union right now an incredible deal we're, we're plugged into this to a country which not only which we defended together against fascism you know a country yeah. which you know the, the, the blood ties yeah. that bound us together over the years are so strong that i i cannot ever imagine them 
really coming. Um, it's funny because, of course, I do fear for the union. I do think that it's weak. But fundamentally, I just think of what we've got in common culturally, linguistically. We've got the same, you know, we share the same viewing patterns, the BBC. We share the first, the same two languages. The same dwindling viewing patterns for the BBC. <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah. You know, but still, yeah. people, people watch, there's something about the fact yes. that we, we do watch EastEnders. There was even a study showing that some Glaswegians have picked up sort of EastEnd twang by watching it uh, so much. We've, we've even got the same second language, which is Polish, second language in England and in Scotland. And, you know, it's, it's really not that big an island, this island that we share. Yeah. Oh, no, and actually, I think it's, it may have been in the piece, your, your bluff piece that you put in, uh, The Spectator, a few weeks ago, about the, the fact that actually on the, on the data, sort of stuff that Matt Goodwin does about value divides, actually, there's probably a greater divide between the East and West in, in England than there is between England and yeah. the rest of Scotland. And that's absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true. No, we are cut culturally from the same cloth. This is not a Czech-Slovak situation or anything. No like it culturally, the, you know, we are the same people. And I've noticed that because it took me a long time to come to England as a Scot. I, I didn't come down and I grew up thinking that England was sort of different in many significant ways. But now I don't think that at all. I'm just really struck by not just how we're, we're sane, but how we've actually converged in the way we see the world, not diverged, which is strange because the political dynamics is going the other direction. Um, but, but the way that we, there is so much that unites us, there is so much of a good story to tell about our union. All we need is a political party with a gumption to tell it. Let's hope we get that. Thank you very much, Fraser. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of SDP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at sdp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.